0: I am convinced that banking crises are a hardy perennial. will we'll never eliminate banking crisis risk unless we eliminate banks. When we see a bank increasing its deposits and investments by 400% in a period of five years, that's what Silicon Valley Bank did. That's a reliable leading indicator, uh, to my mind, of a likely non-viable business model, Silicon Valley Bank didn't know what to do with all this money. It didn't know where to park its liquidity, and uh, that was a warning sign. Uh, An interesting issue that we will learn more about with the passage of time is why the regulators didn't make more of a fuss about those kind of problems.
1: Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders.
0: Welcome and welcome back to another conversation in our series of episodes that focuses on markets and investing from a global macro perspective. This is a series that I not only find incredibly interesting as well as intellectually challenging, but also very important given where we are in the global economy and the geopolitical cycle. We want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world may look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of game-changing issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Please enjoy today's episode, hosted by Alan Dunn.
2: Thanks very much for the introduction, Niels. Uh, today, it's a great pleasure to be joined by Professor Barry Eichengreen. Barry is Professor of Economics and Political Science at University of California, Berkeley, He has published widely on uh, economic history and the international financial system and written a number of acclaimed and influential books, uh, including Golden Fetters and Hall of Mirrors about the Great Depression and um, exorbitant privilege. And his most recent book is In Defense of Public Debt. Professor Barry Eichengreen, it's great to have you here with us today. And it's good to be with you, Alan. Great. Well, we normally get our guests just to give a quick intro to their career path. And obviously, you've got an interesting focus uh, specializing, I guess, in, in economic history and international monetary matters. What what got you to focus on those two areas
0: uh, as an economist? Well, when I was coming up, as it were, international economics was not very widely studied or practiced in the United States. Macroeconomics was closed economy macro. The international economy was not as important to the United States in particular as it became later. Globalization was not yet a thing, but I'm a first-generation American. Uh, My parents came from Europe, I guess, Uh, by virtue of that. I became aware of the fact that there was a big world out there at a relatively early age. As for economic history, I think it's useful for people uh, if they want to become scholars, or for that matter, anything else, to find their niche, to figure out what they're good at. And I figured out pretty rapidly that there were other economists who were better at the math than I was, but that I could mine the historical angle, if you will, better than they could. Uh, So it was partly a matter of calculation and partly a labor of love that I enjoy doing the history, so I ran with it. Good stuff, and
2: I mean, economic history is it's probably fair to say maybe back in vogue now in the last decade or so, after the um, global financial crisis, there was maybe a suggestion that that the economists equipped with their mathemat- mathematical models hadn't uh, really learned uh, the, um, the lessons of history. Um, you focused a lot on the Great Depression, and, and and obviously with your book "Hall of Mir- Mirrors," it was a lot about the parallels between the global financial crisis and and the Great Depression. Generally, I mean, do you think um, when we look at uh, at economic history, how much can we expect to, to learn, and and how clear do you think the parallels are at any given time?
0: I think history is useful both for pointing to similarities between past and present, but also for for understanding the differences and understanding what is new and different, what is distinctive about the current crisis, whatever the current crisis will be. So I, I, I don't subscribe really to the view that history has lessons per se, but I do think it provides uh, a, a broader canvas and analytical perspective. It's a reminder of what the modelers leave out, and uh, what they leave out can be uh, as important sometimes as what they put in.
2: And I guess one of the challenges that you often hear in economics, you know, versus the physical sciences, is this inability to to conduct controlled experiments. And I suppose history gives us, uh, I suppose, uh, so, something of of a solution to that. But as you say, each episode is different. Does it, would, would that be uh, how you think about it?
0: I, I, I prefer to think about history as an uncontrolled experiment. Again, I think I prefer the formulation that history provides a broader canvas and, and uh, a reminder a, of what's left out. And us tried and true economic historians kind of bridle sometimes over against the way historical evidence is used. Uh, sometimes too mechanically, to shed light on on, on current policy concerns. I, I may be guilty of the same from time to time because I am concerned with current policy questions, and I, I'm often asked or tempted to use that history to understand current events better. One of the books you mentioned, Alan, Hall of Mirrors, about the Great Depression and the Great Recession, the Subtitle of that was Uses and Misuses of History. So the, the, the message there was that memories of the Great Depression, the lessons drawn from the Great Depression, did importantly inform uh, bank regulators and monetary policymakers in the 2000s. But they also served kind of as a, a set of blinders that caused us collectively to miss out on some new things that were happening in that case outside the banking system. And that's a, it's an interesting
2: uh, point, that, Yeah, the subtitle uses and misuses. So, you know, in the last few years, we've had a number of different um, scenarios that have prompted people to look in the past. I remember seeing you on a, on a, on a webcast just as COVID was um, coming to the fore and being asked about parallels with the Spanish flu, etc., And then obviously, in terms of maybe the use and misuse of history, obviously, everybody's been focused on this inflation problem in the U.S. And I suppose Jerome Powell has been, you know, alluding to the experience of the 70s and, and, you know, how Volcker ultimately conquered inflation. I mean, is that potentially a a misuse um, in the sense that are, are there very different scenarios now or do you think it's a valid use?
0: Well, again, I think that, um, we, we can, uh, inform our views of current monetary and regulatory policies better by looking at what happened in the 1970s and 1980s, but conduct of monetary policy now is different than it was back then forward guidance is better developed central bankers believe in open mouth operations as well as open market operations, they do more to try to communicate to the markets. The financial system is more complex and diverse than the largely bank-based financial system of the 1970s and 1980s. So I do think we've learned important things from that experience in the 1970s. Arthur Burns, uh, Jerome Powell's predecessor 50 years ago, really denied the idea that monetary policy was capable of taming inflation. And I think we've uh, moved beyond that misconception. I think Paul Volcker actually had to try three times to raise interest rates before he finally succeeded in in, in aiming inflation, partly because uh, um, he too was concerned that if he raised rates, something would break in the banking system. So twice he was too quick to relax, and the inflation problem only got worse as a result. So I think now we see the Fed behaving differently and continuing to tighten, albeit at a Slower pace than before, and using other non-interest rate instruments to deal with problems in the in the banking and financial system. So those are all constructive lessons, I think, that have been drawn from that earlier experience. Despite the fact that both the instruments and the, and the markets are quite different now than they were fifty years ago,
2: and maybe taking a step back a few years, do you think it would be a reasonable criticism to say that maybe there were some lessons not learned in terms of being over stimulatory with respect to monetary policy and this kind of fine tuning of monetary policy to try and hit a very specific inflation target. You know, some people maybe drew a parallel between the kind of the 1960s where there was more of activist economic policy and and a belief that you could really hit the the exact level of inflation and unemployment. Do, Do you think Maybe that was a um, a lesson that, that was forgotten?
0: No, I don't think I would put it that way. Rather, um, I think I would argue that monetary policy has been broadly appropriate uh, for the last decade or so, up until the last year, year and a half, that central bankers did the right thing in, in, in response to the global financial crisis. And then it was appropriate for them to keep interest rates low because deflation was slipping into a deflationary trap, into a liquidity trap was a very real danger. And had they tightened or normalized the level of interest rates earlier on, that deflation could have materialized and we would have been in a very serious problem. The Japanese have been trying to get out, out of that problem for like 20 years, right? Clearly, the Fed fell behind the curve in the last year, year and a half. They didn't see the inflation problem, but in you know, to be brutally honest about it, most of us did not appreciate how rapid and persistent inflation would uh, become starting in 2022. So we collectively, with a uh, very few exceptions, fell behind the curve. I think the real problem has been on the fiscal policy front central banks had to keep interest rates so low for so long because there wasn't appropriate fiscal support for recovery in the in the 2010s. too much austerity, if you will. And then in 2021 there was uh, excessive uh, superfluous deficit spending. the Biden stimulus of 2021 overdid it. and it, together with the supply, chain supply side problems produce this near double-digit inflation that, that we've been fighting against since. So central banks have been the only game in town, if you will. They've had to mop up problems created by other branches of government, if you will, I think by and large, they've done that pretty well, but monetary policy cannot solve all problems.
2: And you mentioned, you know, uh, we've been in, in this tightening cycle and, you know, central banks will, will tend to keep tightening until, until something breaks. And, you know, obviously in the last number of weeks we've had signs of things starting to break. As somebody who's looked at, you know, the Great Depression, the global financial crisis, and many other banking runs through history, I mean, how worried are you about what we're seeing in markets at the moment? And and again, I guess, interesting to get your perspective
0: on similarities and differences? Well, I, I am worried because I think we have seen a demonstration of the power of contagion. Contagious fears of depositor runs and the like have leapt across the Atlantic, from all the way from here on the West Coast to Switzerland and, and, and to an extent Germany, and banks that look well capitalized one day can be in serious trouble the next if there's a collective loss of, uh, of confidence in, in, in their business model. We call that a depositor panic but and, and, and I think we've seen how quickly that kind of panic can unfold in our high-tech world of chat rooms and uh, webcasts and so forth. So I think there's good reason to worry and there is some reason to be reassured. Policymakers are on the case in Switzerland and the United States. Policymakers can be criticized for many things, but uh, they cannot be criticized uh, for responding too slowly or cautiously. So they've moved decisively to guarantee deposits and to uh, force shotgun marriages of banks, uh, all of which for the moment as you and I speak here today, seems to have uh, gone a long way towards stabilizing the situation, restoring confidence, and we'll have to see how how durable that restoration of confidence uh, turns out to be. But this is not a time either for the regulators or for innocent bank depositors like you and me to uh, let down our guard. And is
2: that the I mean, the lesson of history as well, do you think, in the sense that when you get these situations, you know, one, one side is arguing for aggressive responses and the other side is cautioning about moral hazard, et cetera, and, and that played out, I guess, during the global financial crisis as well. Is, is that, have we learned that lesson with Lehman, that, that this is when you get a situation like this, that you act decisively straight away and, and then worry about the consequences later?
0: Yeah. So my reading of the history is there is um, moral hazard risk and there is meltdown risk, and the first task for regulators and other officials is to deal with the meltdown risk and and then turn and deal with the, the moral hazard risk once the once conditions have stabilized. That of course is easier said than done. Uh, an example would be after the global financial crisis was uh, contained, regulators and officials in the United States turned to moral hazard risk and they passed Dodd-Frank. Dodd-Frank was, uh, among other things, raised liquidity and capital requirements for banks, required banks to draft living wills, describing how they would wind themselves down in the event of existential threats to their existence. And then we relaxed those rules, of course, in the U.S. for middle-sized banks with uh, deposits between $50 billion and $250 billion. And look who got into trouble. Banks uh, exactly uh, in that tier who had been the principal lobbyists in many cases for rolling back that uh, response to the, the moral hazard problem. In,
2: interesting. I mean, in terms of the, you know, obviously we're in the midst of a banking strain, maybe banking crisis is, is a little strong, but but you've obviously studied banking crisis, financial crisis, currency crises. Um, you know, normally economists would point to certain preconditions that might be in place that, that might be kind of warning lights in terms of debt and imbalances or and liquidity conditions, et cetera. When you think about history and 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 those types of dynamics and look at the current environment now would you say there's more reason for concern or or, or not based on, on on the kind of typical criteria or the k- typical conditions that would be for, for for financial crises
0: i am convinced that banking crises are a hardy perennial will we'll never uh eliminate them eliminate banking crisis risk unless unless we eliminate banks And banks serve an important economic and social purpose, in in my view. But when we see a bank increasing its deposits and investments by 400% in a period of five years, that's what Silicon Valley Bank did. That's a reliable leading indicator, uh, to my mind, of a likely non-viable business model, Silicon Valley Bank didn't know what to do with all this money. It didn't know where to park its liquidity, so it parked it in ultimately unhedged um, treasury bonds, fixed interest rate mortgages, and the like. And uh, that was a warning sign. Uh, An interesting issue that we will learn more about with the passage of time is why the regulators didn't make more of a fuss about those kinds of problems. So the San Francisco fed did flag them starting in 2021, but that didn't deter SVB from continuing to do what it was doing. I think there are further things that we can do to discourage, uh, excessive risk taking by bank management, uh, in particular, I think in addition to requiring the shareholders and the subordinated debt holders to have skin in the game, in other words, uh, their investments are on the line and will be wiped out if the bank goes under management ought to have more skin in the game. So recently we've heard some proposals that management, uh, salaries and bonuses should be clawed back in the, in the event of failure, big time. And I think that's uh, a fine idea. If you go back in history, many early banks were subject uh, in the United States, for example, to what was called double liability, where uh, if the bank went went under, not only would the owners of shares lose the current value of those shares, they had to pay back the par higher par value of those shares. So that's a historical analog to what people are, are proposing today. Interesting. And we had
2: um, the economist William White uh, on this podcast going back a couple of months. And, yeah, you know, it I suppose his very much the kind of BIS view of, of the world. Obviously, he was formerly chief economist at the BIS. And I suppose you know he I, I, he describes the global economy as a, a complex adaptive system, and, and and because of that, crises are going to be a recurring phenomenon. Um, almost, in you know, in, it's an almost inevitable because of human error and behavioral biases, and, and just the the, the the setup of the, the the markets and the economy. Would would you share that, or do you think that's excessively pessimistic um, perspective on on financial crises?
0: I think crises uh, will all, always be with us. They result from human error, as, as you explained, Alan, but they also result from asymmetric information. Not everybody knows what is lurking in, in, in the balance sheet or the business model of a relatively opaque financial institution or other economic uh, entity. So people trade on rumor as well as fact and rumors can get out of hand, can have a life of their own. Uh, Banks are intrinsically fragile uh, because they are leveraged and because they engage in maturity transformation, meaning they can quickly get into liquidity problems. We've learned this is why you need a lender of last resort why you need more stringent regulation than the political system tends to deliver. We're we're, uh, unlikely to get rid of the problems uh, of short-termism and self-dealing that afflict our politics, so regulation is not going to be sufficient to abolish problems of of financial instability. So that is a longer-winded way of saying what Bill White said your earlier podcast that's enough. <laughs> sure um obviously you've you've written a lot
2: about the international monetary system and and the dollar and so you've written some recent uh, stuff uh, as well on it and you you wrote the book um exorbitant privilege uh, probably about 10 or 12 years ago now and i think at that time probably quite a topical um and um, forecast to say you know that that, that ultimately that dollar would be replaced and uh by by either the euro or or the minby and and obviously we've moved on another decade and, and and the dollar seems to be as strong as ever but 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 after the you know the ukraine um the russian invasion of ukraine there was this you know suggestion about you know that 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 might be a risk for the dollar again with the weaponization of of the dollar so curious um I read an article from from Paul Krugman actually recently, and he said basically no, and he kind of concluded so no, the dollar's dominance isn't under threat, and even if it was, it wouldn't be a big deal, which seemed a bit a bit blase from somebody in the financial markets who you know watches the dollars going up and down. Would you agree with the kind of the Krugman view, or or not, or you? So on those two points, is is its dominance under threat, and and if it was, would that be a significant issue um, for for financial markets?
0: So along some dimensions, the um, dominance of the dollar has declined a bit since I I, I wrote that book, Exorbitant Privilege, in 2011. The dollar's share of uh, international reserves held by central banks has gone down from about 70% then to about 60% today. So that was a prediction I made in exorbitant privilege, and I'm happy to remind you of that fact. I did make a second prediction also, which was um, that the Euro and the renminbi, the currencies of the other two big economies, would uh, become more serious rivals to the dollar, and that hasn't happened. What we've seen instead is movement toward non-traditional reserve currencies issued by small, well-managed economies like Norway, Sweden, South Korea, Singapore, Canada, Australia, uh, reflecting the fact that the financial system has evolved quickly in ways that we couldn't, didn't anticipate 10 plus years ago, making those currencies easier to trade and use. I think that we will continue to see that kind of movement gradually over time, that as the United States comes to account over the long run for a lower share of global trade and global GDP, as emerging markets continue to emerge, the dollars will gradually decline. The United States cannot continue to supply safe and liquid assets to the world as a whole, all by itself, indefinitely into the future. If you believe in the logic of economic convergence or catch up by emerging market economies, Russia, Ukraine, how much will that change things? Um, The Chinese renminbi is not convertible. China's uh, uh, interbank payments system, CIPS, clears about 2% by value per day the transactions that the New York clearinghouse clears in dollars. So countries are going to be looking to China as an alternative to uh, the New York clearinghouse and the dollar and SWIFT for doing their cross-border transactions. But China has a long way to go before its currency is halfway as attractive as the dollar. If the dollar loses its exorbitant privilege. How much difference would that make? Depends on the circumstance. Uh, it seems to me under normal circumstances, not a whole lot of difference. Uh, people like Frank Warnock at the university of Virginia estimate that the U S government can borrow at interest rates, maybe 20 or 30 basis points, uh, lower than otherwise. Because there's this captive market of central banks and sovereign wealth funds holding U.S. Treasury securities. And there may be some uh, commensurate benefit to U.S. corporations. Useful, but, but not gigantic. There's convenience value to U.S. banks and firms being able to do foreign business in their own currency. They don't have to buy hedges against exchange rate movements. But under unusual circumstances, when there is a crisis of one sort or another, the dollar doesn't collapse. People flee. Uh, the flight for safety into uh, is into the dollar and into U.S. Treasury bond markets. So that's kind of an automatic form of insurance for the United States. So I agree with Professor Krugman about uh, what is true in normal times, but there is that important exception
2: and going back we talked about the financial crisis and you know one of the ironies of the crisis was was you know prior to the crisis everybody was focused on these global imbalances the current account deficit in the u.s was six seven percent of gdp and you had this Bretton woods two arrangement and and the, the concern was that it was unsustainable, and that this was going to be the source of trouble. Uh, and then, as you say, we, we we had the crisis. I think originally, initially, the dollar weakened, but then obviously strengthened uh, quite a bit. Is that, you know, the whole area of current account deficits uh, comes to the fore in the midst of periodic bouts of dollar weakness, but then kind of gets brushed aside. Um, I mean, mathematically, the, the U.S. still has this, very large negative net in international investment position. So, I, you know, in theory, I guess you could have a, a situation where people, for whatever reason, all want to dump dollar assets at the same time. And that tends to be the argument put forward. Is is that a reasonable thing to worry about, or, or is there a, a, some reason to say that that's not really that the way to think about it? In,
0: in the last five, six, seven years, there has developed a big literature on global safe assets not only central banks but corporate treasurers want kind of a safe asset that can act as the bedrock of their portfolios and the US remains the the dominant provider of those safe assets for the moment so it's conceivable but highly unlikely with one exception to which I'll come in in, in a moment that there could be run on the U.S. Treasury with everybody dumping foreigners, dumping their treasury bonds en masse in the same way that one could have a run on uh Silicon Valley bank. The one exception, of course, is something that you and I haven't touched on and that we have all been mercifully distracted from by the banking crisis, yes. which is the debt ceiling crisis. So this will come around again in August or September when the U.S. Treasury is not going to be able to pay its bills. And it will have to decide who not to pay, including possibly the bondholders. Um, And that could really, if that happens, that could really change the perception internationally about the safe asset quality of U.S. Treasury bonds. Uh, People would be looking around more seriously for alternatives. And uh, if there are alternatives to get into, they will be trying to get out of treasury bonds, at least um, going forward. We collectively have cried wolf before about the debt ceiling starting in 2011, but but a couple of times 2013 after that. I think the uh, problem is much more serious now than it was on those previous occasions. So the typical scenario is that Republicans demand spending cuts as the price for raising the debt ceiling. They don't get everything that they're asking for, but in the end they compromise or they back down to avoid financial disaster. This time there is a wing of the Republican party that would welcome financial disaster and that is not inclined to compromise or back down. And whether the Republican leader of the House can bring along enough of his members to support uh, a compromise spending bill and uh, to support raising the debt ceiling, I think is is a real, entirely open question. And so obviously that
2: risk that you present is very much I guess you've got the mechanical risk of a bondholder of, of not getting your 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 coupon payment. And then obviously you've got, this was a credibility um, or a lack of credibility about US policymaking, a risk premium associated with that. There are two obvious reasons for, for, for why the dollar might come under pressure. I mean, on the other side, you know, if you, if the debt ceiling gets resolved and you had much higher spending in the US and for whatever reason over the next 10 years and, and, and generally higher inflation profile. Um, presumably, that, that that could alter the uh, the confidence in, in the dollar hypothetically as well.
0: Well, if you look out 10 years, the Congressional Budget Office forecasts that on current law, the public debt in the hands of the public, federal government debt in the hands of the public, will rise from 100% of GDP to 108% of GDP. Is that uh, catastrophic uh, unsustainable trajectory uh, doesn't seem so to me uh, if you're concerned about it the solution to it is to raise taxes. If you look out further there then does develop for demographic and other reasons a real problem of debt sustainability um, we have some time to address it. Am I confident that we have the political will will to do so? Not entirely, but I don't think it's a problem that will, materialize and threaten to demoralize financial markets and undermine confidence in the dollar for uh, un, un, until a number of additional years pass so have me back on in 2033 and we can talk about it. fair enough and um, i mean you mentioned how the
2: euro and the renminbi haven't really um taken up that um, mantle as as kind of Real competitors to, to the to the dollar, um, and obviously the euro has had its own you know challenges. Obviously, we had European uh, debt crisis immediately following the uh, global financial crisis, um, and I know you have written around you know the the, the the kind of conditions required for 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 the euro to survive and, and thrive. I, I guess so. I mean, looking at Europe now, obviously with COVID, we had a a step towards you know mutualization of debt etc and you know uh, there seemed to be greater uh, willingness to, to move in that direction and and obviously you, as time goes by you've got new personalities in terms of heads of state etc are you more or less optimistic about the euro where we are now in 2023 or uh, do you still see it as kind of um a flawed experiment or, or a flawed union
0: in, in in some sense well i think uh, it, it, it's clear with benefit of hindsight that the move to the euro was premature, that having a monetary union without a banking union and some form of fiscal union was problematic, uh, to say the least. But Europe has gone far enough in the direction of banking union and uh, so forth, I think, uh, to put those existential doubts about the survival of the euro to rest now once and for all. The European Central Bank has become a normal central bank, as opposed to a monetary rule. It has acknowledged its responsibility as a lender of last resort and a liquidity provider of last resort. And I think that was uh, essential for the survival of the euro. Mario Draghi's do-whatever-it-takes speech was a decisive turning point. Uh, So the euro is clearly here, here to stay. But that is different from saying it will become a first-class international currency Uh, because, among other things, there is a shortage of uh, safe and liquid, high-quality public-label euro-denominated securities. Last time I looked, only four European euro-area sovereigns have AAA ratings, and most of their bonds have been Hoovered up by the European Central Bank, or have to be held by Europe's old own banks for as as uh, as capital. So there isn't much high quality euro liquidity to go around for the uh, the global economy. Um, I was temporarily hopeful in 2020 that Europe had um, experienced its Hamiltonian moment and it was going to issue more high-quality European Union debt. And it turns out that that looks like a one-off, that it did uh, agree to issue 850 billion euros worth of of EU bonds in response to COVID. But where was the joint and several issuance in response to the energy crisis and, and, and the war in Ukraine and so forth? I fear that uh, what happened in 2020 may have been a one-off. And
2: then with respect to China, um, obviously the, the the renminbi is not fully convertible, so, so presumably that's a constraint, but but there does seem to be a bit more of um, movement towards, you know, you hear Saudi pricing oil in renminbi or, you know, Russia, China doing trade in renminbi, etc. So how realistic is kind of a, a separate, Renminbi block developing where where the Renminbi is becomes more widely used a, among kind of um, friends of China I guess
0: i think as um China continues to build out its financial system gradually relax its capital controls negotiate more swap lines between the PBOC and foreign central banks use of uh, of the Renminbi will broaden and as countries' governments absorb the lessons of U.S. financial sanctions on Russia, they will want to diversify and um, uh, at least develop the option of doing more business uh, via the renminbi and, and, and Chinese banks and China's cross-border interbank payments system. Having uh, said all that, I don't think the way to think about this is a regional block, but rather... Countries around the world, Uh, Argentina has just activated a swap line with China. Countries who want this option to, uh, alternative to dollar dependence, developing that, uh, that option. So I, uh, if there is a complete and utter breakdown between the U S and China over Taiwan or high altitude balloons or, uh, Chinese military aid, to Russia, then there could emerge a, a, a China block and a Western block, but otherwise, I think they're they're more likely to overlap. I would say two two more things about this. Number one, you mentioned Alan President Xi's visit in November to Saudi Arabia, and what they actually did was to discuss the possibility that Saudi Arabia would accept payment for oil exports to China in renminbi. That uh, payment would be deposited in a Saudi bank account in a Chinese bank. They did not discuss the possibility of pricing oil in renminbi instead of dollars. And I think that's revealing that there doesn't seem to be an appetite on the part of the Saudis to entertain that possibility. The second thing I would would say, uh, I used to tell my, this, uh, my Chinese hosts uh, the following, when I visited China before the pandemic, every true international and reserve currency in history has been the currency of a political democracy or republic, where there are checks and balances on arbitrary action by the executive. Uh, this is true of the dollar, the pound sterling, the Dutch guilder. before that, the currencies of the republican city-states of Florence, Venice, and and, and Genoa before that. So there are political preconditions for uh, truly internationalizing your currency. And China has been moving in the opposite direction, more centralization rather than political decentralization under President Xi. And has there been a change in view
2: in terms of their tolerance for... um what might come with greater internationalization of Rumimbi? I mean, I think my understanding was that there were there was a reluctance to go down that path of encouraging internationalization. After you know, you would tend, you may get an appreciation of the Rumimbi over time, which was something they were keen to avoid. Is that something as the economic uh, model hasn't changed yet dramatically? But the assumption is that it may change over time. Do you sense that change in
0: in in approach there or or not? Well, I, I I do sense a change in approach. China has to do more financial reform and uh, put its big banks and regional banks on a more of a commercial basis, basis where they don't engage in policy lending at home and abroad, but they're normal commercial banks. It has to continue to reform the financial system more broadly uh, and that kind of, uh, financial reform and liberalization will challenge the control of the center of the PBOC and SAFE and the Politburo. And, you know, they have been moving in, in the opposite direction, trying to, trying to strengthen their control. So, uh, as I said before, I have not been to China since before the pandemic few of us have. It's a little hard to judge from the outside, but, you know, verbally they remain committed to Renminbi internationalization and they are taking select steps to promote it. But I think they worry about, uh, the compatibility of party control of the economy and financial system on the one hand and the prerequisites for currency internationalization on the other. And you touched briefly on
2: on the kind of the projections for U.S. debt levels uh, going forward, and, and you seem quite comfortable with those levels. And there is, and obviously you, you've written about this in your most recent book, um, In Defense of Public Debt. So clearly, well, presumably you felt the need to make the case to, to defend it. I guess that's part of the political environment we're in now. But has that case changed, do you think? Obviously, you know, if you look at the Maastricht criteria, it used to be kind of 60% of GDP seemed to be a cutoff for the Europeans and then you know following the global financial crisis you know the rogoff Reinhardt research around 90% got a lot of attention is there a general recognition now that these higher debt levels are okay or I guess coming out of COVID a lot of people were saying these debt levels are way too high we're going to have to see financial repression um, and that that, that that policymakers are going to let inflation be higher than expected to, to, to erode the value of the debt where, where do you stand on that?
0: When whenever I'm asked about this, I remind the interviewer that the debt to GDP ratio has two parts. And uh the more successful you are at growing the denominator, the less worrisome is given level of debt or a given debt ratio. The World Bank came out yesterday with a new set of projections for the world economy and for developing countries in particular, and they've scaled back their Uh, forecasts for emerging markets in developing countries in particular. So that makes me more concerned about uh, now heavier debts in the emerging and developing world. When we talk about uh, advanced countries, we we know that for us, 75-80% of GDP growth is productivity growth. Our labor forces are shrinking and uh, much of our investment is replacement investment to make up depreciation of existing capital stock. So uh, economists are, are not good at predicting productivity growth. You know, it's the residual of our total factor productivity calculations. It, what Robert Solow put it, it's a measure of our ignorance. So you tell me what productivity growth is going to be over the next 10 or 20 years, there is a scenario in which artificial intelligence is going to be deployed to, uh, take over a lot of tasks that are being routinized more quickly than we ever thought possible and where productive workers are redeployed to, to doing other more specialized, more productive things. So I can imagine a scenario where the debt problem is not a problem because we grow out from under it. That That's a, a happy scenario. Uh, I find it harder to imagine a scenario where uh, U.S. politicians sit down and, and achieve a meeting of the, the, the minds about how to balance the budget and, and bring this problem under control. So book you mentioned in defense of public debt, describes on, uh, on the one hand how governments with good reason uh, issue public debt big time in response to emergencies, be they a pandemic or a financial crisis or a war, but governments then r- retire some of that debt or at least reduce the debt ratio when the crisis passes. So we're much better at doing the first than we are at doing the second. You asked me at the top of the hour about meltdown risk and moral hazard risk we're, we're similarly much better at addressing the first than we are at the second so you can you can see a pattern here
2: yeah and I think that's exactly the point where, where a lot of people would probably have a concern that during covid we got used to you know um issuing lots of uh checks and uh financial supports and and obviously we're we're seeing that again with the energy crisis, at least uh, here in Europe, obviously, with energy costs effectively being subsidized effectively. So on the one hand, you know, central bank trying to tighten monetary policy, but effectively on the fiscal side, you're seeing some um, stimulus effectively. So I, I think that's part of the concern that that, that maybe we've had that, um, you know, um, obviously going back a few years. Modern uh, monetary theory, you know, was to the fore, etc. And 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 obviously, there's been a sea change away from accepting austerity to to a greater political uh, acceptance of, of higher spending. It seems. Would you agree agree with that? Well, not
0: a higher spending across the board, but rather, when an emergency arises, we splash out the checks indiscriminately, and that creates unnecessarily large deficits and debts. So in response to COVID, uh, the U.S. government gave checks to households with household incomes up to $150,000. You know, I submit that a a household with an income of $150,000 probably could have taken care of itself. And similarly, uh, checks in a variety of European countries to deal with the energy bill were provided indiscriminately across the board to everyone, as opposed to being means tested. Uh, So clearly, politicians find it hard to provide emergency support to those most in need without providing it more broadly, because they need everybody's votes. If they're going to be reelected, there is a systemic problem here.
2: So obviously, as you say, you know, in an ideal world, uh, the, the way out is to, to, to grow uh, via, you know, productivity, etc. Um, in the absence of that, I suppose, the, the, the suggestion is that allowing inflation to, to be higher than expected and will, will generate higher nominal GDP growth. And that's the whole idea of financial r- repression. Do you think that's a, is that something that the policymakers seriously consider, or is that something that people on the outside looking into the policy world assume happens? But, I mean, you know, do you think central bankers ever really say, let's, let's, let's allow inflation to run a little bit higher from from a debt sustainability perspective?
0: Well, not, not central bankers in the United States or the euro area, in my view. I think the price stability culture, low inflation culture is deeply ingrained in the minds of our, central banking brothers and sisters. I think creditors, bondholders are, are a powerful constituency. So, um, we have succeeded in inflating away part of the debt burden in the last year or so, but interest rates are now headed up. So I think that opportunity is pretty much passed. The other way that economists think about debt sustainability is in terms of R minus G, in other words, real inflation-adjusted interest rate relative to the rate rate of growth of real output, real GDP. The real interest rate moves slowly uh, to all appearances. I think there are some signs that it may be headed up, at least modestly. The real interest rate depends on the balance of global savings and global investment, with China growing more slowly and saving less, Ben Bernanke's global savings glut will diminish or go away. And I think there is likely to be a surge of investment coming from uh, the climate change and energy crisis and the security and military crisis. So if global investment goes up relative to global savings, we'll have a higher real interest rate, uh, and that will make that sustainability correspondingly more difficult. If we can grow the real economy more successfully, uh, echoing that earlier discussion you and I had, uh, that will make the debt burden lighter.
2: And that, I suppose, brings us to another topic that I know you've looked at from a long-term perspective as well, and that's um, secular stagnation. And I, I, I know Larry Summers and Olivier Lunchard were debating this recently, and and the, the debate seemed to centre around this relationship between, as you say, RNG and whether how strong growth will be, and, and and whether we'll see higher rates. So it sounds like you are now you you're you're in the in the camp that that that, that maybe secular si- segregation might be in the past if we're going to be in a in a more environment of slightly less uh, surplus savings and 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 a little bit higher in terms of uh, the, the likely trajectory of, of investment demand over time.
0: Well, you're, you're, you're trying to make my view, uh, out as a little bit more sensational than it only really is, uh, my own historical work looking back 150 years, uh, the work of Paul Schmelzing, who is, uh, Austin college, um, goes back 500 years. And I think the, message that comes out out of this work is that the real interest rate moves slowly, even glacially, uh, except in, 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 in the event of uh, world wars and the like, uh, something that um, I'm, I'm not prepared to contemplate. So uh, I can imagine that with savings a little bit lower globally and investment a, a little bit higher globally we Could be moving into a higher real interest rate environment, but o- only modestly. Okay. And
2: we, the, the one episode that we've had recently around, where, where there was a concern around, I guess, fiscal policy, debt levels, um, and growth concerns was obviously with, with the UK experience, where, you know, um, the, Liz Truss's experiment with, with supply side economics, I guess you might call it. Uh, wasn't well received by the markets, and, and we hit a tipping point in terms of UK gilt yield levels. Do you think that that was very much a UK one-off type scenario, or do you think um, it's a warning shot that, that you know, the bond vigilantes that used to be so prominent in the 90s that, that may be coming back, and that, that, that policymakers have to be more uh, cognizant of that
0: risk? Well, I think the UK Trust Government problem was idiosyncratic, distinctively British, um, but it was a useful reminder about the Im- Im- importance of coherent, internally consistent policies What at whatever the level of debt, but especially if, if the level of debt is high and the financial system has weaknesses as uh, two conditions that are met in a wide variety of countries.
2: Mm. And you've written your, your book, obviously, very much focused on public debt. But um, th- there are concerns out there about the level of private sector debt around the world, and and that the system is is too indebted. Uh, obviously, China in particular, but not just China, many European countries as well have high private sector debt levels. Yeah, you what's your sense on 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 that side of it? How, would would that be
0: more of a concern than the public debt side? Um. I think it depends on the country. So in the case of China, corporate debt and uh, household debt related to real estate is a bigger problem than public debt. On the other hand, I think uh, in, in a variety of advanced Western countries, there has been quite a bit of progress um, since the global financial crisis in terms of private sector deleveraging. depends on the circumstances but the corporate debt problem in 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 china uh the debt of construction companies and property market linked companies uh evergrand is prime case in point certainly bears watching
2: the whole area of 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 debt and uh, debt sustainability and, and 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 debt crisis, particularly with respect to 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 emerging markets tend to be You know, inextricably linked with with kind of currency crises as well. You know, you you have touched on how the the World Bank um, adjusting their forecasts yesterday. I mean, there was a lot of concern coming out of COVID around the the emerging world, obviously with respect to the vaccines and and the impact that would have. Take broad in broad strokes, what would you say is the the outlook in 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 the emerging world at the moment from from a growth, from a debt, and from a currency perspective?
0: There are um, literally dozens of low-income countries which came out of COVID with unsustainable debts that are now effectively locked out of the markets and uh, where where governments are unable to provide basic social services to their constituents. The common framework, which was put together by the IMF and the World Bank and devised to combine uh, governments of advanced countries with the other big creditor, China, has been a dismal failure in that only one country, Chad, has been able to restructure its debts under the common framework. And only three others are trying at the moment, where there may be three other three dozen other countries that desperately need to restructure their debts. So part of the problem is getting China and and other governments on the same page to restructure their bilateral intergovernmental debts. An even bigger problem is getting uh, the private sector creditors, the bondholders, in other words, on the same page with governments and multilaterals the common framework was supposed to help with that but it hasn't so i'm um very concerned and worried about uh debt problems the debt crisis in low-income countries and in a number of middle-income countries like sri lanka
2: okay well we're we've been talking just about an hour so we, we often ask guests just when we're wrapping up um for, for advice for, for, for people who want to learn more about their respective fields so obviously you' you've got the expertise in economic history international finance the monetary system for for people starting off in their careers or for anybody who wants to learn more about economic history obviously we reference a number of your own books so they're good starting points but it, you know it can be quite daunting um but any any kind of advice around good places to start uh, if you want to learn more about these topics.
0: There's a a website out there called Five Books, asks uh, wise men and women for recommendations uh, of books in different fields. And they've done this for economic history recently, asking actually a UC Berkeley student, Davis Kedrosky, uh, for recommendations. They've asked uh, me in the past and other economic historians as well. So I would go there.
2: Well, that's great. Well, Professor Eichengreen, thank you very much. This has been a a fantastic, uh, insightful uh, conversation. So thanks very much for for speaking to us today. So make sure to follow Barry's work, because obviously you can hear from today's conversation we're living in a a very interesting global macro-driven world. So it's as important as ever to be up to speed and informed on all things global macro. So from all of us here at TTU, thank you for tuning in. We'll be back soon with more exciting episodes, so stay tuned.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.